Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Thanks for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. Greetings, I'm Bernard. And I'm Magenta. You might know us from such hit podcasts as Madame Magenta, Sonus Mystica. Horror anthology Magenta Presents. Or season three of Mockery Manor. We're everywhere. And we're spreading faster than an STD in an old folks' home, because now we have a brand new podcast. Wham! Wham! It's a fun acronym that stands for We Have a Movie. Oh, it's not just an acronym, Bernard. It's not? It's a chat podcast where we invent smash hit Hollywood movies based on popular toys. If you like the Barbie movie and you want to see similar treatments of your favourite childhood toys, I'll wager you'll like Wham! With episodes on Polly Pocket, Rubik's Cube, Game Boy, Strawberry Shortcake, Furby, Connect Four, and lots of other nostalgia bait. But it's not just for adults who still like toys. It's a podcast for anyone who loves Hollywood tropes and comedy. And quantum mechanics. And BDSM. Wham! has something for everyone, but is still specifically about movies. That's Wham! W-H-A-M. You know, like when Batman punches someone. Yes. Adam West. That Batman. Exactly. Not the Christopher Nolan one. No. Download it anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's what the world needs, another movie podcast. Was that clear? Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned quantum mechanics. Hey, folks. This is Arden co-creator Christopher Dole coming to you live from the Arden Season 2 edit bay. Which is my apartment. But, well, this is where at least some of the magic happens. We hope you've been enjoying Arden Season 2 thus far, and we still have two more pieces of the saga of Hamill Hill's ranch to deliver to you. First, Episode 212, A Piece of Work, will be released on Monday, December 21st, and the second, our season finale, More Things in Heaven and Earth, will be released on Monday, December 28th. We're working hard to deliver these episodes at the level of quality we know they can be, and we hope you enjoy them. In the meantime, while you wait for the final chapters of the season, we wanted to share a behind-the-scenes look at Arden with you. Those of you who support us on Patreon or Indiegogo know that every episode this season has received an in-depth discussion with some of the key cast and crew involved in that particular episode. We've curated six clips of some of our favorite discussions to bring to you today. In this first clip, drawn from our commentary on episode 203, the true crime podcast The Thing, composer Laura Stratford walks us through her process writing Dana Hamill's songs. When I approached this, I had been writing original musicals, like not adapting anything for a long time. And I still am because I hate myself. I was talking with Emily earlier today about how much harder it is to do that than adapt stuff. So this was like a walk in the park. I was like, you're here to tell me that like the best writer ever wrote a bunch of cool speeches and I get to go in and cherry pick the best stuff and then write a song and get credit for that. Yes, 
great. So my process for approaching them, Chris and Sarah told me to listen to Casey Musgraves and Phoebe Bridgers and gave some kind of spiritual antecedents for Libby's style. And then really what I would do, which is my process kind of always, is I would read the soliloquy. Back when we were adapting the soliloquies, uh, as Emily said, there was a little bit of scope creep, which I won't talk too much about. So for, let's take Show My Made Business, which is the song that is in this episode. My process was basically I would read the original soliloquy and then I would go for a walk and just kind of mull on it. And Chris... And Sarah had given me the really good feedback of not trying to fully embody the entirety of the soliloquy, but to try to pick a key image or theme and condense it down and build a song around that, which is great because these soliloquies are so rich. Show on My Weed Business is based on soliloquy from Hamlet Act 1, Scene 2, which is how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. So I would walk, I would say the soliloquy to myself, I would read up on what was going to happen roughly in the adaptation in Arden around what this song needed to do. And one of the pieces of feedback that I got for this one was that it was going to be one of the first songs that we heard and it really needed to be Dana introducing herself with a bang. What I took away from the soliloquy is Hamlet is basically saying, what am I here for? What What is a man of his chief good and market of his time be but to feed and sleep? And he ends it up by saying, basically, what's my deal? All of these people have way less reason than I do, are jumping ahead and are like changing the world, going to war, doing all these things. And I have the greatest possible reason to do the thing that I'm going to do. My dad was killed. My mom was like seduced. And this guy is just getting away with it. And I can't even do anything. And the last line of the soliloquy is, oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. I was walking around and I was like, oh, what is like a thing that people would say like, I, I got to show them that I mean it. I got to show them, like, show the world that I'm going to actually do the thing. But knowing this was going to come really early. And so singing the, like, I think my uncle killed my dad and I'm going to kill him was, like, not going to be helpful. And knowing that, that Dana has an audience because these songs are happening in public. They're not just her sitting in her trailer alone by herself basically walking around it boiled it down to like oh, i gotta fucking show them i mean it i gotta show them i mean business and once i have that kind of hook i'm better able to figure out what the rest of the song wants to be around that in this next clip from our commentary on episode 207 rosalind and pamela are dead Charlita Gaston talks about portraying Pamela Pink's relationship with mental illness and grief, as portrayed in the episode. Uh, Charlita, I, I want to sort of hear your thoughts on this hyper-competent person and like having her also have sort of this mental illness thing that ends up being like, yeah, it's no big deal. I take pills. I'm fine. It's part of my life. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. There's so much coming up for me when you say that. Um, one, I think that it's really important to have the conversation that's first and foremost. But I think that the idea that the way that she's able to integrate the depression into her life and still be a high functioning person, whatever that means, 
um, because yes, she can she can go to the station and 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 be the most um, resilient person there. But is she happy? Is she grappling with sadness? Um, what's happening internally? That's a whole other question. You know, in regards to whether um, she is high functioning. But I think it is something interesting about a character who is able to keep walking, to keep keep putting one foot in front of the other, even in, even though in the background there can be sadness and there can be um, disappointment or there can be just profound questioning of, of, choi- of her choices. And I think that's a good representation of mental illness because not everyone is debilitated by it. There are people where it is a matter of changing their dosage. It is a matter of getting back in with their therapist and you know, figuring out what isn't working and having those conversations. Sometimes it is a matter of making different life choices and readjusting. So it's like constantly having to pivot and to, to re, to figure out how to make her life work with the mental illness. And I think that that's a good, I think that that's a good story to tell. And I think that's a story that a lot of people want to see because for a lot of folks, you have to keep putting put you have to continue to put one foot in front of the other. A lot of folks don't have the privilege to be immobilized by their depression or by their mental illness. So it says something for the folks who every day are like, I'm gonna negotiate, how do I live with this? And whether again that's changing my dosage, it's connecting with my partner and being very clear on what I feel and what I need, or even just being clear with myself, you know, in terms of what I feel and what I need. I think that that's just a really good responsible way of showing depression because I think that there are a lot of people that are coping and are just kind of okay with not being okay and that's okay. Um, I think there's something really beautiful in that because it, it really speaks to the the struggle but then also the beauty and the divinity and the grace in navigating that struggle and and even in the midst of falling down, but the grace and getting back up, however long it takes you to do that. So I just love that it shows just a more whole life, like a life of a person who has has darkness. But at the same time, you know, there's incredible sense of um, inspiration and an incredible sense of, you know, being excited for the new job offer and all these new different potential opportunities that lie ahead. And I think that's the reality for a lot of folks, like life is many different things. And I think showing that, you know, I personally have, um, I have a family member that was lost to gun violence. So I think dealing with grief and how grief shows up um, I think all of those things are things that a lot of people are carrying, whether it's grief, depression, it's reevaluating life, infertility, all of these things are in the background for a lot of people. So I think showing a character who is having a conversation about how do I keep going in the midst of having this stuff, I think a lot of people are going to appreciate it. Pamela's far from perfect, but I think what I lo- love so much about her is just she's just so rooted in doing the best she can with what with what she has and I think there's great power in that like a character that's just doing the best she can and I personally was just really inspired by her journey and I loved playing her and I think a lot of people listening to to the character particularly this episode are gonna find dare I say inspiration in that if not comfort I feel like a lot of people are gonna see themselves 
in a character like Pamela, especially with all of these sort of the the unfolding of this character and these new insights that we have about her. So I hope that answers your question, but that was just sort of what I took from it. It's like, wow, this is about how, how to negotiate a good life with bad things that are in your past or things that are uncomfortable about your chemical, you know, makeup. I think that's just a really interesting way to handle it. And now for something all of our fans have been wondering since they first laid ear upon the voice of Andy Wayface. Ben Watts takes us through the process of inventing the voice for the leader of the good people in our commentary on episode 208, Out of Joint. I am very curious to know like where it comes from. I don't even know what accent it is. I'm just like flabbergasted by it every time. So t- tell us a little bit about finding Andy Wayface's voice. Well, see, I think the difficult thing is I, I never seem to lose the voice. That's the problem, because I sound nothing like this, and you all know, and every time we do the recording, I come in, and I always sound like this. And I don't know where it came from, but I can tell you where it inspired. But first, let me drop it from one mm-hmm. second. Hello. This is what I actually sound like. <laughs> uh, it's a little different, just a little. Um, same kind of mannerisms. But when I came into audition, because uh, uh, originally I know the characters were very different the way they were set up, and I was auditioning for a different character. And then when you said, "Do you mind reading um, for Andy?" Uh, I think, I think I tried like a. It was kind of like an American Texan accent to begin with, and I don't know where it was coming from. I think I was kind of picturing him as like an uh, almost like an oil baron of sorts. And I remember that. I th- yeah. Yeah, and. I think we all agreed that wasn't good. <laughs> so uh, you gave me the option. It's like, just if you're going to do anything, if you just kind of go crazy, um, what kind of, what voice would tickle you first? So I took, I just, I, I don't think it took very long, but I just was, I, because I am Australian um, by nature, I, I find I do um, revert to a, probably a British, more British dialect. And I think I always have a Monty Python type voice in my head anyway. So I just tried to, I just tried something and that was the voice that came out. It sounded, it seems to me just like a character you would find in Monty Python. He is, he seems to be brilliant and stupid all at the same time. He's kind of experienced everything, but knows nothing. Um, He's always keeping people on their toes. And I find his, his seems seem to be childlike wonder of everything that he's experiencing. The most joyous part about playing him. Everything is new and everything is exciting. And he he's, from what I can tell, maybe arguably the most positive character uh, in the in the show. And he he will let you get away with with murder. Uh, he'll let you really do anything. I don't think Andy, as a billionaire businessman owner, I don't think he really, he doesn't really wrangle wrangle the the purse strings very much. He 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 is fully out there. I don't think he, is there a budget? Has he given anyone a budget? No, I think he, people are free to just do what they like uh, as long as they record his wonderful, <laughs> wonderful commercials. Up next. In our commentary on episode 209, To Thine Own Self, Mia and Brenda themselves, Michelle Agresti and Tracy Syed, talk about how the process of recording the show has changed for quarantine, 
and what it's like to record some of the most intimate and important scenes of the show without being able to see each other. You're so used to being in the same room and I want to hear what it's been like to act off of each other on microphones scattered across the city of Los Angeles and now literally across the country. For me, I, I, I feel that um, in some ways I enjoy it a little more because I think listening is so yes! important. Um, and you are forced to become an empathic listener. And that I think creates in some ways a better scene. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll say this until the end of, you know, Arden. I love being across the table from Michelle. Like it's one of my joys, but, um, but, but it does lend to a different level of performance in, in, a, in a way that's kind of unexpected, you know? Of course, I was nervous coming into this without having everyone in the room, but it has lent to a different level of performance, in my opinion. Cool. Yeah, I actually, I, I was almost waiting for Tracy to go because I wanted to see what she would say, because I totally agree. Now, of course, I'm not doing the post-production, which I'm sure is significantly more difficult and has suffered from like just the varying degrees of what kind of audio quality we can all get in our apartment closets um but like because you know we're working with audio this is a radio play like if just hearing each other is how listeners would experience it mm -hmm. so if I'm just hearing Tracy and just hearing myself that's actually great for me because I actually know what the product is like and I'm actually like reacting to just the just like the pure audio, which is all anybody's going to hear. Whereas like when we're in person, you know, we're acting together. We're engaged with each other. Our whole bodies are acting. And it's not saying like our whole bodies are acting, aren't acting when we're alone, but I'm just saying like, I'm also feeding off her physical energy, which I bet comes through on the audio. But mm -hmm. I think that it does kind of just, it, it could kind of distract like me as an actor from what's coming across on the audio because I'm having so many more things to play off of. Right. Um, so I actually think it's really interesting that way. But also like I, on a personal level, like completely prefer in person because I love being with other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I love the like, you know, we're all, we've all become friends and it's like such a joy, like Tracy said, to be with everyone, especially like I love acting with Tracy. But in terms of like audio wise, when we're not in the same room, I'm only hearing the audio. And I think that that actually is good. Yeah, there it's, is something. It's interesting, sorry, in, in, in listening to the episode today, I was struggling. I'm like, gosh, did we really not record this in the same room? Like I, I really, especially in the car scene, I knew we didn't, but there was a moment where I was, I was listening with my friend who I'm staying with and I'm like, gosh, I think we did this separately. I think this was, it had to, you know, I was like having this moment where I'm like, it had to have been like, we've been a quarantine for decades now. So it, <laughs> we couldn't have 
been in the same room, I really had a moment where, where I couldn't remember and I was questioning that. So in that sense, you know, as much fun as we have across the table from each other and with the rest of the cast, I mean, there's so many talented people in the show and it is a delight to be in the room with everyone. I couldn't tell when I was listening today. So that says something about, you know, the level of performance um, without each other in the same room. So. Here, Sersha O'Sullivan and Emily Vanderwerf discuss how Sersha helped Emily see more deeply into the character of Olivia Breckenridge and her journey in episode 210 to a nunnery. I actually, I, I, I do have a question that's more specifically for Sersha, which is, we did a table read of this in January, as I just alluded to, and we came out of that table reading, we're like, it's too long, it needs to be trimmed back, but otherwise this feels just about like this feels like it's it's good and um uh i came out of that with this like weird little thing itching at the back of my brain that was like something about olivia here isn't sitting right with me um and so i got i got coffee with with sersha and literally you started asking me what does olivia want and i was like well you know she wants the ranch i think and um i'm wondering like like what you remember of that early draft and why you were sort of like ready to push push back on me on that so i was just prodding you because um a lot of it was coming out of your own experience and i think that it was something was caught and, and you weren't quite able to um you know, manifest or verbalize it and i was just it was just searching questions searching for um what i felt was blocking it mm-hmm. and uh, and i was just trying to uh trying to to get at something and reveal something mm-hmm. um and that's about as exact as precise as i can be because i can't really remember the total conversation that we had right but um yeah but 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 i was just kind of reading you and and i was and i was trying to get at um as from my perspective as an actor trying to like figure out well how do i connect with this and um and and just feeling that out. I mean, it's kind of rare that you could have in-depth conversations with both the director and the writer mm-hmm. of the character that you're portraying um, in, in such a, like a crafted way. It's usually so quick. Everything is so quick. And so, but this was because it was um, a lot more of a, the, the process was a lot more crafted. It was nice to sit down and, and just try to like, I mean, we could just sit there for an hour over coffee and talk about one line basically, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the things that, that kind of bumped me that you sort of backed me up on was, I thought there was a little bit too much Olivia explaining what it is to be trans. And we have a little bit of that in the final draft, but it mm. felt to me like we were trying to educate the audience in a way that I wasn't sure was helping the story. And you, when you were kind of like, yeah, that seems right to me. Um, but you also said, you know, a lot of people need to hear trans 101. Like that's a thing that people sometimes need to understand. But I, I think the episode is stronger for dialing it back as much as we did. And granted, I went back and reread the first draft and there wasn't that much of it in there. Go ahead, Sersha. Oh, well, I mean, I'm I'm much more in favor of like the show don't tell kind of paradigm, especially mm-hmm. because a lot of what we look at in this kind of thing is not so much um, what it means to be transgender as a whole or as a class of individual, but like what it is to be transgender for Olivia mm-hmm. as opposed, you know, and, and there's not like, I mean, as soon as you go like part of trans 101, there is no trans one, there is no one trans narrative. And, mm-hmm. um, and so you get into sticky issues when you try to um, 
sort of preach to the audience about what things are and the way things should be or how people, certain people are, you know, like the, this, this group of people experiences this sort of thing in this sort of way. And then, you know, as soon as you, those words come out of your mouth or, or come off the page, you're going to have half of your audience get upset and be like, well, that's not my experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like rightfully. So it, it always comes down to more like, what does it mean to Olivia to be trans than it is to like, what does it mean to everyone? What does it mean in the general sense? And then, but we also live in an inter in a like interesting time. I and mean, we live in a very peculiar time where trans acceptance is fairly widespread. I mean, people at the very least are like, yeah, that's a thing and I acknowledge it. it whether or not they feel certain ways about it, they're at least acknowledging that it's a thing that happens. Whereas before it was like, you couldn't even broach the subject or you would be like, I mean, it was like a witch trial almost like it's, everyone was, people were, had these gender conversations used to be under lock and key yeah. for whatever reason. And now they're not. Um, but still, because we've come from that time of like, no one gets to talk about anything ever or have any experiences ever. Everyone's having their own individual experiences. We have now a whole lot of people with their own version of what it is to be trans, but also this whole um, new younger crowd, which they are, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're cohesive, but they're much more cohesive than, you know, my generation was anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, you just have a lot of different stories about what this is going back and forth all over the place and what it should mean. And I mean, some people even talk about, well, if it means that, then this other thing can't be true. And so it should mean this. And it's just like, well, what if it doesn't mean that to someone is the thing. Right. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I don't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> no, you didn't. That was perfect. That was literally uh, what I what I wanted to hear. Okay. Uh, no, that's that's a that's a much better answer to that question than I would have given, which was how many points know. did I get? You got <laughs> you get five points, so you're leading you're leading the commentary scoreboard. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, the two Libbies both have three points. Uh, I have no. Um, Finally. Sound designer Chad Ellis walks us through the two most difficult scenes to sound design in episode 211, Angels, Ministers of Grace, etc. One of them may be what you expect, the other probably isn't. I think Christopher knows me well enough to know that like, if you can give me something big and challenging and like something that's unclear on how you would go about doing it, that I'll probably bite. <laughs> so that's what he brought to me. Um, yeah, so I believe I, apocalyptic was the word I used. <laughs> and I'm so glad you used the word apocalyptic because I kept going for it from there. But that's, you know, going into Arden, like when I look at the sound design from a bird's eye view, I'm like, well, there's not that much going on, but it's still like a full sound design process going in. I think a lot of it's just trying to get the space right, like trying to find the right backgrounds. Um, and also some of the things you all write into your scripts that should be very easy to find in a sound library just don't exist. <laughs> like, you know, gallons of gas being poured, poured all over like a living room or oddly enough being tied to chairs. That's just not out there. Like I can, give explosions for days. I can give gore effects for days, but these very simple small things are just nowhere to be found, at least in my libraries. 
Um, Imagining you as such a perfectionist that you're like, petrol, that's not going to cut it. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, I volunteered to go pour gas all over someone's living and like do the foley. You know, but we couldn't figure out how to do it with social distancing. And this is a responsible (laughs) podcast. So that we decided to, uh, you know. You use the, go, go with a, an off-brand. Did you have any specific sound design questions, I should say, now that I did that whole like intro? Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording and you had mentioned like, I think when you came on, I was like, oh, well, you know, Chad's gonna have to design this enormous soundscape for the, the fire at the end. But you were saying that the family dinner was almost as complicated. So I want you to sort of take me through the difference between doing something that big and then something that small and why one might be as complicated as the other. Yeah, so I would say 60% of this, the sound design time that I spent on this episode were split between two scenes, which were the final um, you know, fireball scene. And then specifically when they're sitting down to have dinner, um, not you know before Dana drugs them all. And I went for the second scene first because I knew it would be easier and more doable. And I knew if the kitchen scene or like if my dream for the dinner scene didn't work out, the show could survive without it. Whereas like I knew, okay, no matter what, I need to make, as Christopher described, like an apocalyptic ending to this. Um, But with the big thing for going through like the dinner scene is for one, the show is, you know, you, you're good writers. Congratulations. You did it. You're good writers. And so I knew what was going on in these characters' heads. And these, this is something that Chris and I would have meetings talking about kind of character motivation and where are people at? What is the point of view? So like, I knew the point of view for this episode is going to be Dana. And so I'm kind of centering the sound effects on her. Um, and I also knew what the people were thinking. I knew that Clyde and Trudy thought they had more information than Dana. I know Dana was playing with a full deck of cards for their plot, but not their background. And so I was looking for just a bunch of little, I mean, for one, an eating is so gross to listen to. Like eating and kissing are two just awful things that we're constantly trying to crack in audio drama. And so oh I- God. But also like, this, this is gonna make some of the audience cringe. You know, forks on teeth is also a very unpleasant thing. So you have to find like a good balance between all of this. And so I knew I was going to focus on Clyde eating his way through this. I knew I was going to focus on Trudy performatively eating and enjoying dinner and then pausing and then performatively doing that. And I knew Dana was basically not going to participate. And so it was mostly going through and just looking for all of these different cutlery sound effects and scooping and layering it in such a way and then having it be quiet in the right places. Like for example, when Dana reveals um, the how her mental state is changing despite being on the medication. Clyde up until that point is just chomping away, having a good time. And then it, it's like a quiet moment. And then Trudy picks up the utensils again and starts eating. So I was trying to work with that give and take for that scene. And it just involved like a lot of just like, I would say, you know, it's like embroidery almost where it's just like needlework of, you know, very specific things and then adding and adding and making sure you're not adding too much. Um, but I must have listened to that scene 15 times to go back and see, okay, what else can I place here um, to have it work? And then like, where are the character beats? Um, where would someone, because I think this season is so much about family and fraught family relationships. And so I'm going back, like, I love, 
if I have a brand when it comes to my role in a lot of audio drama, it's nostalgia. It's trying to take you back to moments that you've experienced, even if it's not this exact thing, you've experienced something like it. So I'm like, okay, what have my fraught dinners been like? Who's eating? Who's not eating? Who's eating a lot? Like who's, you know, what is everybody doing? Um, and just trying to build that into a scene. So I would like, yeah, describe it as embroidery. Whereas the final scene is more like painting. Like you're just taking, you're dipping your brush for a lot of it and just scraping it across the canvas to get that base. And so I was trying to find, I mean, the big, I think thing I kept going back and forth on is like, I knew I wanted animals in the scene because there's just something stressful about a bunch of humans yelling with sirens in the background and a dog barking. And I wanted the dog to like react to the explosion, but at no point did I want anybody to think the dog was like caught in the explosion. So it's like, okay, at what point can I get the dog barking again? Um, but so when I, I do soundscapes, I'm usually looking for some kind of like background air noise that just replaces in case there's any anomalies with characters' mics, those aren't picked up, like it covers those up. And then from there, it's like adding environmental things. And this one was heavier than any other scene I've done for Arden when it came to that. Like I had the dog barking, I had to find the right sirens. Oddly enough, the sirens I ended up using were recording from a rooftop in New York City, which is not what I thought I would. Like I found some country siren things and they just didn't sound as good. Um, and then luckily you all had music for it, which I didn't know about, which then covers everything up anyways. Like it just, anytime you add music to a scene, the sound design has to do like 40% less work. Um, but yeah, so it's like, okay, we got the dog over here. And then we have the house and then just figuring out like the house fire was tricky, but like the big things were easy. Like finding a dog barking was very easy. Finding sirens was easy. Finding fires and explosions were very easy. The difficult thing with that scene was finding out the transitions. So like, okay, I need the right car pulling up on gravel. And I've been working with gravel a lot on the ranch, just in specific paths. Like when uh, Rosalind like pulls up on a bike, I'm using gravel. I think gravel's just tactile and kind of takes us to the country, especially when it's surrounded by crickets and birds and whatnot. So it's like, all right, I need the right car effect. And then for the house itself, like actually igniting, it's like, what does that sound like? Um, and it doesn't really sound like anything, unfortunately. And so I tried to do like, a, okay, we're gonna have some glass get blown out. And so that was a little trickier. And then for the big moment, it was just layering, it was me grabbing explosion after explosion after explosion, just trying to find all of these different things. Like I knew I wanted the initial big house boom. Um, and I have like participated in blowing up propane tanks before in uh, my more delinquent youth. And so I know a lot of times like some of them get flung. And also like if a hole, sometimes you puncture a hole in one and it just shoots fire. Like it doesn't actually explode. And so I'm like, okay, how do I make this apocalyptic where it's not just like fire in the house and then explosion in the shed and then that's it. And so I wanted this sense of this thing's blowing up and it's flinging shrapnel and it's flinging other things. And some of the propane tanks survived and like rolled away and blew up somewhere else, which probably lit something else on fire um, and just <laughs> constantly. So I added a bunch of them and then I took them all away and like removed, put them to the side of the project and then slowly added them back in for specificity because it's very easy to throw a lot of things at the audience at once. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but Arden is a very deliberate specific show. And I always try to sound design a show the way it's written as much as possible, just to create like a sense of unity between these different art forms that go into making these shows. And so it's like, no, I want very specific explosions to happen in very specific places. I want a very specific cause and effect. 
So, you know, glass, fire, fire gets bigger. Uh, shed explodes. Um, some of the shrapnel goes and knocks something else over. Some of these things explode elsewhere. Bigger explosions there happen, you know. Horse neighs in reaction, a horse, you know, uh, runs by you. And so that was, I would say, the difference, the best way I could describe it. Like a lot of time went into both of those scenes, uh, but both the end result and the process of going into it were very different. Like I only needed three sound effect or two sound effect tracks for the dinner scene, even though I think it has more effects than the final scene. I needed 12 effects tracks and like five ambience tracks just to get all the sounds in that final scene. That's our behind the scenes reel, folks. If you want more discussion of making art in season two, you can sign up at our Patreon at patreon.com slash ardenpod or at our Indiegogo, where you can get commentary from co-creators Emily Vanderwerf, myself, Sarah Golub, from writers Libby Hill, Mara Woods-Robinson, and Lenny Burnham, from actors Michelle Agresti, Tracy Syed, Shannon Estabrook, Charlita Gaston, Benjamin Watts, Libby Woodbridge, Saoirse O'Sullivan, and Mia Drake, from composer Laura Stratford and sound designer Chad Ellis. We'll be back with you next Monday for a piece of work, and the Monday after that with our season finale, More Things in Heaven and Earth. And then, on January 1st, one more thing. Happy holidays, stay safe, and thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish. In the alley, the scent is stronger, overpowering. As I watch, the overhead lamps flicker and wink out one by one. God damn it. No. The girl appears briefly under the last streetlight, the headphones snug against her ears, the Walkman clasped to her hip. She's oblivious as she walks, lost in her own world. Hey, stop! I need to talk to you! Then she swallowed up by the darkness again. Helen, wait a second! <laughs> it strikes her in the gloom so fast she barely has time to scream. She falls into the edge of the lamplight and lies there, bleeding, motionless. The man's skin is scaly, flaking, and there are patches of soot on his cheeks. He stares at me with eyes like midnight. Eyes that are devoid of remorse, devoid of humanity. He's one of them. I turn and run, and I don't look back. The Road of Shadows, a new mystery and suspense audio drama by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Listen now at theroadofshadows.com.